stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. Because real change is something that's invisible. You know, politics is war without bloodshed and war is politics with bloodshed. And, and the quote was that those who make peaceful revolution impossible only make violent revolution inevitable. So even though he may not have agreed with those young militants emerging in the black power movement, he understood their position. Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests. Unless we say we agree. Unless explicitly stated. It is, brother, it is. And we have Minister Zundi Chihuahua, the author of GOAT, Gospel of Afronomics Theology. Precise thinking is where he gets to do his stuff. So, good brother. I want to step back for a second, man, and uh, let you do your thing. <laughs> As we say, you don't give opinions, you give research. So drop those jewels, brother. Do the knowledge. Indeed. Uh, as tonight's topic shows, we talk about the real Dr. King versus evil supremacy and CRT. CRT standing for critical race theory. And yesterday was the actual birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King. Tomorrow will be the recognized holiday of Dr. Martin Luther King, which is usually the third Monday in January. And because my focus has always been about economics and entrepreneurship, business and finance, I want to go into a bit about Dr. King in terms of his uh, philosophy about economics and economic justice. Now, in the early part of the civil rights movement, Dr. King really wasn't focused as much on economics as he was later on in his career. He was more focused about the social justice. But as he evolved as the symbolic leader of the civil rights movement, he began focusing more and more on economics, particularly when he became an outspoken critic of the Vietnam War, where he felt that resources that were going towards the Vietnam War effort were being taken away from the war on poverty that President Johnson had declared. What we don't seem to know much about Dr. King was that he was a proponent of what's called UBI or universal basic income, where basically every eligible citizen would receive a monthly stipend with no strings attached. He felt that this was part of the way to bridge the gap and redistribute um, resources and, and wealth. He also believed in using economic sanctions or what we call boycotts. Now, there's been a couple of boycotts that King launched specifically, and really this is near near the end of his life, where there's some clips that you can find on YouTube where he's encouraging people in Memphis to not buy certain products because of the fact that they were not hiring poor people, people of color, particularly African people. Uh, he had boycotts against Coca-Cola, boycotts against Wonder Bread, and he was having 
people shift where they bank from one bank to another bank. Uh, this is what he would call redistribute the pain which those of you who attended the Million Man March in 2015, uh, Minister Farrakhan used that particular theme of redistributing the pain in terms of creating economic sanctions by holding your money and basically shopping with Black-owned businesses. Uh, He also encouraged the support of Black businesses and Black financial institutions that we had talked about earlier. One quote that I want to mention, 1961, in his American Dream speech, he says, quote, as long as there is poverty in this world, no man can be totally rich, even if he has a billion dollars. And another one, uh, this is 1967, when he spoke at uh, a Southern Christian Leadership Conference event. He says, quote, we must create full employment or we must create incomes. People must be made consumers by one method or the other. Once they are placed in this position, we need to be concerned that the potential of the individual is not wasted. New forms of work that enhance the social good will have to be devised for those for whom traditional jobs are not available. So, so, this concept of Dr. King talking about a guaranteed income. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know what? I mean, it, it's interesting. And the reason that we bring CRT into this conversation is mm-hmm. many times those who are anti-CRT. And let me let me put a little caveat here. We're not pro-CRT. <laughs> we don't think that CRT should be in the you know, the pre-K, the um, high school schools, you know, K-12 system, you know, mm. I, it can stay where it is, <laughs> in the colleges, you know. <laughs> and it's crazy that these uh, anti-CRT folk are really acting as if it's in the schools and we got to mm. stop it and we got to right. prevent it from going deeper in the schools. I really believe after listening to many of my fellow, you know, I'm conservative in nature. So mm. I listen to a lot of conservatives and they're just... We got to stop it from coming to our schools. It's coming through our schools through these, um, these, um, these policies. It's like, oh, what okay. policies are we talking about? <laughs> They're talking about policies that bring about some type of equilibrium, equality, mm-hmm. you know, equal right. opportunity policies and things of that and that. Um, so it's interesting to me that. CRT has become this boogeyman or boogie person or boogie woman, whatever you want right. to call it, you know. <laughs> Where they're attacking this straw man, CRT, mm-hmm. and they're really dealing with policies that bring equity. It's equity policies that they're really addressing. Right. But they can't come out and say, I want to stop equity. How does that sound? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I find uh, interesting about CRT is this. I remember the first time I heard CRT, I was in college. We're talking about 1995, 1996. Okay. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere within the past year, CRT also, also uh, all of a sudden becomes this, this hot button topic. Right. Okay. And I'm hearing it come more from white people. Okay. Yeah. My conservative folk. Yeah. So, so my question is, 
why is it a hot topic now as opposed to and, you know, based on what my research says, it can be traced all the way back to the 1960s to where what 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 critical race theory does is it wants to. Oh, and and since we're talking about critical race theory, uh, we want to acknowledge the uh, transition of uh, Dr. Lonnie Guineer, who just passed away uh, earlier this week. Okay. I say. So when we when we talk about this critical race theory, basically it's really exploring how systematic racism affects various institutions, the legal institution, the educational institution, etc. Okay. So and that's why I said, what is it about critical race theory? And like you said, it's being treated like uh, the Red Scare of the 1950s with communism. <laughs> okay. Crazy. That's crazy. And, and and that's why I said, you know, there, there has to be something behind this. You know, you're starting to hear terms like, you know, uh, Marxism, that critical race theory is a Marxist uh, uh, communist, socialist type of uh, thing. And, and I'm thinking like, okay, are we back in the 1950s, 1960s here? And why are we using that kind of language to talk about uh, a particular phenomenon or really a, a, a theory that, like you said, is primarily in post-secondary education? You know, yeah. and that's why I said people have to begin to start asking themselves, why is this a hot button now when it hasn't really been discussed in only 30 years? Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, I I think the elder did a the elder ancestor, the beloved elder ancestor, Dr. Martin Luther King, may his name continue to open doors, may his mm-hmm. legacy continue to be a pathway to success and to excellence. And May his thoughts continue in our minds. Um, he said, whites are not putting in putting in a mass effort to re-educate themselves out of their racial ignorance. It is an aspect of their sense of superiority. Mm. So it, it, it's interesting that even back in the 60s, Dr. King was talking about what these anti-CRT folk are doing. Because mm. It's been here since the 1900s, since the 1800s. It's the same thing. It just keeps changing. You know, before it was the way it is, you know, a person of their time. And then it became a white hood, you know? Yeah. And then it became uh, overt over policing. Mm. And now it's anti CRT. Right. It's the same thing. Over and over and over. And Dr. King talked about this back in the 60s. Mm. So what really kind of just I find crazy is, you know, many of the, uh, you know, my peers who are anti-CRT, they want to quote Dr. King all the time. I was like, really? You want to <laughs> quote Dr. King? Yeah. You really didn't ris- listen to Dr. King. You really didn't read Dr. King. You really didn't understand Dr. King. Mm. So, you know, of course, they always throw out his um, his statement from the segment of the speech on um, the yeah. March on Washington. So, yeah. you know, the March on... And you know this better than I do. You know, you're the historian. I'm just the empowerment guy. 
<laughs> you know, he was doing a march on Washington, and who was it? Mahalia Jackson said, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell right. him about the dream. Mm-hmm. And then he starts extemporaneously, i.e. freestyle, look it up. Yeah. <laughs> he extemporaneously starts speaking about this dream that he had. And he says mm. that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they not they will they not be judged by the color of their skin, but by mm. the content of their character. Right. One day, my four little children. One day, mm. <laughs> are we there yet? No. 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 And we, why do we say no? Is because when we look at the sentencing disparities. Mm-hmm. Our Caucasian brothers and sisters get a lighter sentence. We get a harsher sentence. When we look at what happens with real estate, if you show your home and it's obvious that you're of African descent, Aboriginal descent, you know, whatever term you want to use, indigenous descent, if you're a black person, so-called black person, the people who do the assessments rate your value of your property at a lower price. Right. You know, we look at the top companies who've been hiring blacks for what 50 years now 60 years now 70 years now Mm -hmm. and the higher epsilon is still lily white Mm. which is kind of understandable they started some of those companies yeah they didn't let us in for years decades but so you know has dr king's dream been realized the question, the answer is no. But what I even find even more intriguing mm. is in 1963, Dr. King gave the infamous I Have a Dream speech, which is really a small segment, like I said earlier, from the March on Washington talk. Right. In 1967, he said to see, uh, actually, I was going to say CNBC, but that's new, to NBC, <laughs> National Broadcasting Company, mm. you know. NBC proud as a peacock. You can tell I'm old school. (laughs) (laughs) He says in an interview in 1967 that my dream is a nightmare. Right. That we were overly simplistic, that we were overly enthusiastic, Mm. and now we need to become more realistic. Right. So, So he walked back his dream. Four years later, he said, I had a chance to think about it, and we were wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, but that's still, when anytime you hear Dr. Martin Luther King, you think, I had a dream. But yeah. he himself walked that speech back. Mm-hmm. So why is that being flushed down our throats? Well, it all goes back to, and, and, and it's something Dr. Clark always talked about, with history, when somebody controls your narrative, you can begin to make someone say or uh, be perceived in a, in a particular manner. Uh, we talk about the March on Washington. The official title was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That's the official title. Wait, 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 wait. Are you telling me that Dr. King was marching for money? <laughs> he was marching for jobs and for freedom to okay. get y'all off my back and to get a paycheck. Oh, economics was involved. Right. Oh, 
Okay. And whether we talk about King, whether we talked about Malcolm, whether we talk about Garvey, whenever these men started dealing with the global economic order, that's when things begin to go haywire. Okay. Because all, because all these men understood is that economics is a huge part of that equation. Think about it. If you don't have resources, you basically can't live on this planet. Okay. And if you don't have any sort of connection to the earth, then do you really belong on this earth? Okay. So these men understood the importance of having resources just to live out the daily functions of life. And so when you have a system that denies you access to capital and whatever other type of resources that is necessary for human survival and group survival, this is where you create this phenomenon we call poverty. And what poverty breeds in people. Okay, and I think it was Dr. Claude Anderson who says there's no way that you can build real wealth with a job unless you're a good thief. <laughs> okay, hold on, wait, wait. You got to say that again, bro. <laughs> let's let's take a this, class, man. Class this, this, in this session. This is this is from our poweronomics at uh, elder Dr. Claude Anderson who says in an interview there is no way. You can build real or any form of generational wealth with a job unless you're a good thief. Okay. And so when we go to the <clears throat> the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, this is when I, uh, from what I've seen, King began to turn the, the corner to begin to understand the importance of economics. Okay. And I think that there were three, three individuals who may have influenced that shift. Okay. One, obviously Malcolm. The other two gentlemen, uh, one SB Fuller, the other AG Gaston. Now what's interesting about these two gentlemen, AG Gaston and SB Fuller, both of these gentlemen are, I guess you would say, conservative in nature. S.B. Fuller was a known black Republican, but both Fuller and Gaston believed in economic empowerment through entrepreneurship. And in fact, it was Gaston who secretly funded elements of the civil rights movement because he didn't want to be openly endorsing that movement particularly because of his business relationships with white businessmen in Birmingham and throughout the state of Alabama. Wow. Okay. It's and all you know, about you also, the money. Ain't a darn thing funny. <laughs> <laughs> and you also have to remember A.G. Gaston comes out of that accommodationist school of Booker T. Washington. That's his primary influence. Okay. Intriguing. <clears throat> Like I said, y'all, you know, brother, <laughs> brother Zumbi comes with the research. So I, I didn't actually I knew, but I hadn't thought that the entire title really gave 
a pathway to understanding what Dr. King was on at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, one of the and, things... Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Go right ahead. One of the things that he said that I think is intriguing, you know, because uh, whenever our anti-CRT folk jump up and they quote Dr. King um, and then they talk about capitalism, somehow they connect CRT with, you know, it's anti-Christian, it's anti-Dr. Martin Luther King, and it's also anti-American and anti-capitalistic. Mm. But Dr. King said something is wrong with capitalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, I think America forgot that they called him a terrorist. They called him oh, a yes. communist. They called him a bad person. They called mm. him immoral. You know, and uh, well, something you know is why wrong they with chose King. Something is wrong with capitalism. America okay. must move towards democratic socialism. Deep. We must develop programs that drive the nation to the realization of the need for a guaranteed annual income mm-hmm. now I know you were talking about the earlier in the broadcast uh, drop the jewels what's the annual guaranteed income <laughs> okay universal why is basic, it so important yeah universal basic income it's really been it's really been brewing for the past few years Initially, you've been hearing billionaires that have been pushing it. People like Elon Musk. Uh, I think Mark Cuban had been a proponent of uh, universal basic income. Basically, it's a monthly guaranteed stipend, no strings attached. Because, and there's one book that I read it. I think it's called The Robots Are Coming. And the primary move behind universal basic income, according to this book, is because of what's happening with the emergence of artificial intelligence, automation, and robotics, okay, you're going to have a huge pool of labor that has been rendered obsolete and irrelevant that nobody really wants to take the time to retrain into this new economy. So universal basic income for all intents and purposes, is really a pacifier to prevent social unrest. You see, so anything to kind of keep the to keep the party going and to keep the people extracted. It's kind of like the way things were back in Rome when they used to have the uh, the gladiator games in the in the Colosseum. Okay, for some of you who may remember the movie Gladiator where the emperor gives the people 150 days worth of games to distract them from what the real issues of the Roman Empire were. So universal basic income is really more of a sense of how do we pacify the people and prevent them from coming to kick our ass? Okay. Just to keep it a buck. So, so that's how that's really and, and, and here's a funny thing about universal basic income. King was an advocate of universal basic income. Guess who else was an advocate of universal basic income that you would not believe? Okay, drop it. One former president Richard Nixon. In fact, Richard Nixon had a bill that was one step away from making universal basic income law. I think he got it past the Senate, but it died in Congress or the other way around. But he was one step away from making that a reality 
on the law books in America. Intriguing. And now we have, you know, this uh, this situation where sisters in Georgia, and it's only a small amount. It's only a small. I think I, I think it was mm-hmm. only like under four hundred uh, black women in Georgia will get eight fifty per month guaranteed income as a pilot program. Yeah, it, there's been pilot programs. Uh, there's one being run in Columbia, South Carolina. There's been one that's been uh, done in uh, the Bay Area. Uh, not San Francisco, but another city. I want to say Sacramento or Richmond. Um, what's the one city in the Bay Area where Kevin Johnson was the mayor? Well, you know, hey, that's people like yourself keep up with that, man. Okay, so, all right. <laughs> I keep so, up with my children. That's about it. <laughs> I don't do a real good job with that either. <laughs> okay, so but but it there has been uh, cities where, in fact, where where I'm at, Rochester, New York which is north of Albany, is about to run its own version of a universal basic income program. Okay, so the way I'm seeing it, it's not a matter of if, but when this thing will become national. Okay, and that's why I said, what's going on with the economy to where, now when billionaires start proposing something like universal basic income, you know, a red flag should go up. Your antenna should go up. Hmm. Okay. Why would billionaires be proposing something like this? I, 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 hey, you're going to have to school me, brother. Take his yeah. school. No, I'm just saying, you know, just asking yourself that rhetorically. Okay. Because what benefit would it have for a billionaire to promote this program unless, like I said before, it's something to help prevent social unrest because of artificial intelligence, automation, robotics, along with globalization, along with privatization, downsizing, and outsourcing that are rendering a whole bunch of labor obsolete. In fact, there's a book I'm going to put out there for everybody to go read. It's uh, written by Jeremy Rifkin. The book is entitled The End of Work. Okay. And that's a book where it gets into globalization. In fact, there's a chapter, chapter five, is called Technology and the African American Experience. That particular chapter talks about how African people in America have been victims of technological advancement or in economics, we call that creative destruction. Okay. Okay. So for example, if you go back to by the end of World War II, and this is according to Jeremy Rifkin. So by the end of World War II, black labor, as far as like agricultural labor in the South was rendered obsolete. And then by the let's say by the end of the black power movement, right around 1974, 1975, the labor in the factories, obsolete. In fact, I had an elder here locally who was telling me about robotics was being discussed by his father as early as the 1950s. To where you had already begun to see the process of how do we eliminate the need for all of this labor to operate these factories. And this was before you started moving jobs out of the country and into foreign nations such as, you know, Taiwan and China, et cetera. 
So so this is this is kind of the driving force behind this uh, desire for universal basic income. One of the things that I often find intriguing is as we deal with the anti-CRT types, um, mm. they push back hard on the concept of reparations for the descendants of in American slavery. Mm. You know, for uh, for us foundational black Americans, you know, ADOS, whatever term you want to use, they push back on it. And I actually have one person say to me one day, well, that's not what Dr. King talked about. <laughs> yes, it is. That's what happens. Yeah, that's what happens when you can control history because now you can pick and choose what you want somebody to say. It's the old African prop uh, thing about until lions have historians, the hunter will always be the hero. So you can't allow the hunter to dictate the narrative, and and that's what's happening now. And I said it's very ironic that people want to quote King and literally pimp his legacy okay because let's be honest if it wasn't for the emergence of Malcolm and the Nation of Islam would America feel the same way about Dr. King or go ahead I think it's very intriguing that you bring that up brother I think it's very intriguing that you bring that up because there is a quote that I found that uh, where'd this quote come from? I can't remember where the quote came from, but it mm. kind of talked about how, well, I tell you what, instead of trying to explain what the quote says, <laughs> I, I, I think I just might drop it myself and just mm. you know, put it in the chat so people can see exactly what it said. But it was really intriguing because it pretty much said what people will do. Yeah, here it is. It took okay. me a second to find it. During the lifetime of great revolutionaries, the oppressing classes have visited relentless persecution on them and received their teaching with the most savage hostility, mm. the most furious hatred, the most ruthless campaign of lies and slanders. After their death, they're talking about revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. Consider uh, Dr. King, the great honorable Dr. King, to be a revolutionary. After their death, Attempts are made to turn them into harmless icons, yes. canonize them, and surround their names with certain halo for the consolation of the oppressed classes and with the object of duping them, while at the same time emasculating and vulgarizing the real essence of their revolutionary theories and blunting their revolutionary edge. Mm-hmm. I think this was Lenin. Yeah, this is state and revolution from class, society, and the state. Yeah, this okay. is Lenin. So, of course, you know, Americans were not supposed to like Lenin. Boo, Lenin. <laughs> <laughs> but it's intriguing because he's pretty much saying that what the oppressed will do is take a revolutionary, dilute them after they're dead, kill them first mm. after they're mm -hmm. dead, and then give a really watered down version of them and say, hey, we support this. We support, hey, let's all clap. We're all going to clap for Dr. King. We're going to have a holiday. Mm. <laughs> See. We're going to say, hey, let's look at his dream. Let's celebrate his dream. Mm -hmm. Let's enact his dream. Right. But all the other things that Dr. King was saying. Right. And, and you also have to remember, 
even his disciples at one point turned their backs on him. Because you have to remember, King is what I would call a moral revolutionary, where he tried to appeal to the morality and operate from principle in terms of transforming America, which in a lot of cases, in a lot of ways, uh, placed him at odds with the status quo establishment because he was operating on a very moral level and he was trying to appeal to the conscience of a people in a society that has no conscience. Which makes him unbelievably dangerous. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, his quote that really kind of deals with reparations saying that something special happened to us so something special needs to happen for us mm-hmm. and so this is an intriguing quote because I think that uh, those who get into conversations and battles and debates with the anti-CRT folk and once again we're not pro CRT. We think it's just stay in the college. Stay where it is. You know, we're not saying... <laughs> We're just saying that you're fighting the wrong battle. And the interesting thing about that wrong battle is that was contrived. Mm. There's a uh, conservative a strategist who said, hey, you know, the base is losing. We got to come up with something to really energize the base. And the thing that that strategist came up with and I can't think of his name right now I'll pull it up in a second okay he came up with a strategy to energize the base and the strategy was hey let's say that this thing is creeping in our schools it's not but mm. by the time we get the base energized that won't matter and then we right. can take CRT mm. and we can fight against equity problem, you know equity policies right. because we don't want to <laughs> we we don't we don't want equity. I guess the powers that be didn't want me to say that. Um, <laughs> it's all good. Hey, we're mm-hmm. here with Minister Zumbi Shawala while I fix this, author of the Gospel of Afronomics Theology, and this is precise thinking. With Minister Zombie. I want to f- fix this, bruh, so I'll take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when we talk about um, CRT, that's why I said in, in many ways it's a distraction. And the reason why I call it a distraction is, and I probably might introduce this into the mix white conservatives have, or really as a collective, white people have a disease, what I call the fear of a black planet syndrome. And the reason I say that is because if you look at what's happening right now, um, it has been made official that whites globally are at a negative birth rate. And they're beginning to see a shift in power where they're no longer the big man on campus, where now they're having to deal with uh, dark faces and positions of power and authority. You know, 
be it Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, be it Gaddafi in Libya, or be it any leader on the African continent who will not sell out their people. Okay, so it's it's a brand new game. In fact, there's a book that I read about 20 years ago, written by Thomas L. Friedman, it's called The World is Flat. Um, I was talking with a professor at Temple University in Philadelphia about it. And I said, you know, Dr. Montero, it sounds like it's a chicken little book for white people. You know, and I think what you're seeing now is you're you're having to create this boogeyman uh, in, in the form of CRT because you're basically afraid of losing power. And as the Honorable Marcus Garvey taught, that power is the only argument that satisfies man. So as your power begins to dissipate, uh, you'll begin to see a bit more desperation and in some cases a bit more viciousness uh, from those who seek to hold on to power at any cost, even at the expense of the rest of the human family, uh, the animal kingdom the environment, anything that's connected with nature. So I think CRT, this anti-CRT movement is kind of uh, a surface thing of something greater. Okay. All right. We still there? We're still here, bro. I was just okay. <laughs> I the mic fixed. The mic. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to get the mic fixed. I, I couldn't okay. remember yeah. the guy's name. I'm going to pull it up in just a second. But mm-hmm. you know, um, that's another great quote by Dr. King. And so, as we once again, as I said earlier, we're not pro CRT in the classroom, <laughs> not in the K-12 school. <laughs> you know, we're simply saying, hey, this is the boogeyman. They're fighting against something else. And as mm-hmm. I was saying, I believe that it's that equity policy, right? Uh, and, and, you know, like I said, when, when you when you go back and you really study like what we say, the real Martin Luther King, he was really pushing for a redistribution of wealth. And so really, when he began to critique um, the money that was going towards the Vietnam War, I mean, we're talking like at that time, I think nearly 100 billion dollars was being poured into the Vietnam War effort. That was money that King felt was being taken away from the war on poverty here in America. And he and think he I forgot what uh, what sermon it was. He says, how does a nation how can a nation find money to pour into a space program to put men on the moon? But yet you can't take that same money and help God's children back on their feet. And man, that's some revolutionary talk. Okay. That's saying, hey, power base, you're doing something wrong. Hey, powers that be, you're acting evil. Hey, powers that be, you know, the white power structure, uh, American government, whatever you want to call it, you know. Right. Hey, you're not acting in the interest of your constituents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's why I said King 
you know, King basically became not just the symbolic leader of the civil rights movement. He really became the moral conscience of America, where he's trying to get America to operate um, on the ideals that it put on paper. So that King was kind of like, I guess you would say an agitator. He's basically asking America to operate on a higher plane. And and that's really what caused such conflict, not only with American society, but even within his own camp. Because there were many within his camp who weren't willing to stand on principle the way the king was. And that's why, you know, before we lost him, he was basically persona non grata. Yeah, and people really don't remember that. They don't remember that, uh, you know, the church that he worked with were like, nah, N-word, you got to go. Right. <laughs> You're going to get master upset with us. We're going to all get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you and know, to bring, I want to bring up another thing. Now, to, to show you how King's, I guess you would say King's own morals was used against him. J. Edgar Hoover, uh, they were monitoring King, you know, the last few years of his life. So when King went back to Memphis, uh, it was discovered that King was going to stay in a in a Hilton hotel. And so I think it was J. Edgar Hoover who used the media to call King a hypocrite, saying, why isn't he staying at a black-owned motel Instead, he's housed up here in the Hilton. So by King's own moral standards, he basically shifted from the Hilton to the Lorraine Motel, which was black owned. But what we found out later was it was near a business, to my understanding, that was I think it was owned by a Klansman, which which gave them uh, a greater opportunity for his ultimate assassination. So it was basically getting King into a position to where he could be eliminated. Understood. You know. Yeah, there's going to be haters. (laughs) Oh, haters going to (laughs) hate. Oh, yes. Uh, I did find that I couldn't remember the guy's name. His name was Christopher Rufo. Okay. So Christopher Rufo is the uh, conservative strategist who said, hey, we got to come up with something that's going to energize our base because our numbers aren't, you know, when the, you know, the, the Republican conservative voters aren't coming out. And I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not against conservatives or Republicans or Democrat. I, I, I'm, I love you all. <laughs> All right. I'm not concerned with that craziness though. Mm-hmm. But Christopher Rufo is and he wanted to make sure that by any means necessary the conservatives win. So he came up by pushing this ancient theory, <laughs> this ancient class, this old mm-hmm. school stuff called mm-hmm. critical race theory, which right. came out of critical theory. Mm. Critical theory says something's wrong. It's been wrong for a long time. There must be a system behind it. Okay. That's critical theory. So critical race theory comes out of critical theory. 
So mm. it presupposes that something is wrong and something is systemic. Okay. All right. And so critical race theory took that same framework and said, hey, there's something wrong with the judicial system here in America. Mm. Racism must be baked in. Let's investigate. Okay. And that's what that whole thing is, right? And so Christopher Rufo said, hey, we got to find a way to energize the base. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. So we have decodified the term. In other words, we changed what it really meant. Mm-hmm. And we'll recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with white Americans who are conservatives. Yeah, it's fear mongering, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the old thing. We're going to take a word. We're going to switch the meaning. We're going to anger people around it. And mm-hmm. then we're going to rally the troops. Right. And it was like, ah, we got to stop this. It's not in your schools. We got to stop it from going to our schools. It's not in your schools. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it, it's not in your schools. It's not in your schools. Right. So, ah! Yeah. He did a great job. I want to salute Christopher Rufo for being wickedly evil. That was just a great strategy. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Unfortunately, my conservative brothers and sisters fall for it each and every time. Mm-hmm. But same thing happens with my uh, liberal brothers and sisters. We fall for the <laughs> banana in the tailpipe far yeah. too often. So, yeah, it's, hey, it's Christopher Rufo, you did a great job, man. You got all these people riled up on something that's fake. And he used quotes from Dr. King to try to recodify it, as he stated on his tweet. Yeah, it's a classic case of social engineering. It, it really is a classic case of social engineering, or we can even go as far as to talk about James Click's uh, chaos theory. You know, where things that happen that you think are independent of one another, but there's actually a method to the madness. And like I said, the critical race theory, it in my estimation, it poses as a distraction. So while people are worried about critical race theory, nobody is looking at what's happening with your food prices. Nobody's looking at what's happening with inflation. Nobody is looking at what this uh, quote unquote uh, CVD has done to the economy and how are we going to operate in a post CVD economy? Wait, 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 wait. Okay, define the acronym, man, for the uninitiated. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) Well, pandemic, basically. Okay, so that's why I said, because while you're using uh, this whole thing about CRT, you're distracting the people from issues that are really affecting the people. Okay. Like I said, look at what's happening with your food prices. Look at what's happening with inflation. Look at what's happening with the eviction moratorium that's about to expire. You know, you've got, you know, at least I know here in New York State, you've got city missions that are basically bracing themselves for when that thing is going to expire. 
where now you're going to have homeless shelters and city missions flooded because you've had people that hadn't paid rent in nearly two years. Wow. Okay. So, so there are bigger issues that are really on the table, but the CRT thing is serving as a distraction. It's something like uh, Lyndon B. Johnson once said, you know, if I can get the poorest white person to blame the richest black person, I can dig into his pockets and take his money. Talking about the poor white person and make him feel that he's superior based on skin color. Well, that goes along with what Dr. King said. This country has socialism for the rich, rugged individualism for the poor. So those folk, the people who, uh, I guess, got addicted to the high hog, (laughs) (laughs) they're going to be out on their own. And so they're going to have to be rugged individualists to survive. Mm -hmm. However, we do have programs we do have funding. We do have grants for the wealthy. Mm. And and so this is something that King was talking about back in the 60s. Yeah, I mean, we can take it back to the bailouts in 07 and 08. You know, look who got bailed out. Uh, the banks the big three automakers, even though Ford didn't take any bailout money. Uh, what was the phrase that they were using? Uh, too big to fail. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, we had to save Wall Street at the expense of Main Street. Well, you know that they're saying that the bill is too big to pay when it comes to the reparation for the descendants of those who were enslaved here in the United States of America. <laughs> you know, the bill is too big. It's unrealistic. Yeah, whatever. Um, but, you know, like Dr. King said, something special happened to us. Something special ha- should happen for us. Right. Right. And, you know, we know, like, you know, we have no political friends. We have no political friends. None. The Biden administration is not in support of it. Both, you know, Biden said he's not in support. Kamala said, what, I want to do something that only benefits black people. <laughs> Quote, unquote. Mm. Uh, we know the Trump administration wasn't for it. No. You know, President Trump interestingly said when when they brought to uh, in, um, reparations to his table and he said, I think it's interesting. I just don't see it happening. Mm. So that's interesting how. We know, <laughs> you know, you know, people talk, you know, horribly about President Trump, but he was like, it ain't going to happen. You know, he didn't say I didn't want it to happen. I don't support it. Mm. Stop talking about it. Right. Yeah. It's a good idea, but I don't think it's going to happen. Mm. Joe Biden. Oh, uh, no, I don't support it. Mm. Later on. Um, well, I, I think it should happen to the Native Americans first. Well, you know. You know, <laughs> Mr. Vice President at the time, they already well, received those. They, right. they they already received those, Mr. Vice President at the time. Hmm. Uh, well, I still think the Indians should get it first. Well, you know what's adding insult to injury? When there was discussion about giving 
uh, Afghan refugees $450,000 per individual. Oh, okay. Absolutely. And I, I was I was listening to a Dr. Clark lecture uh, last week, and he said something that was very profound. He said, what African people in America must realize is that you were never intended to be citizens. You were brought here to be cheap labor and ultimately subjects, not citizens. Okay, because if you were citizens, why is it that you continue to fail the New York City taxicab test? Okay, and and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have no friends, brother. Okay, so so I so I think African people, and you know, it was something brother Copley said in a, in a lecture the week after 9/11. He said, "What do African people really want? Do you want?" Reparations, or do you want liberation? In other words, do you want to get free or get paid? You know, I've heard things like that. Uh, you know, the brother Coakley mm-hmm. uh, told me I was an oath taker. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I love you, Elder Coakley ancestor. May you rest and continue to be a blessing to us. But uh, I. <laughs> <laughs> All right, no, no, I love Brother Coakley, man. He he did yeah. some revolutionary stuff. Mm. But look, man, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the the way I look at it is this. Okay. Do we really? It's like this. Do we do we want to do we want to get free or get paid? And what I mean by that is this. Um. If we choose liberation, then reparations is really a part of that package. Okay. If we choose strictly reparations and all we're looking for is a check. Now, what do you do with those resources? Do you pour it back into the same system that's been pimping you for centuries? Or do you take those resources that you receive and put it to use for the good of your people. All of the above. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm telling you, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But I do think that needs to be it does it definitely needs to be strategized. Mm-hmm. And if that's your point, you know, I'm all with it. Yeah. If that's your and, point. And, and what I mean by, by liberation is this if we if we were to rewind the whole 40 acres and a mule thing. Had the Freeman's Bureau not been dismantled by Andrew Johnson after Lincoln was assassinated, who knows where African people would be today? Okay, if we had gotten the technical assistance necessary, I mean, think about what we did without it from 1865 to approximately 1910. With no sophisticated food stamps from any white university, we were able to amass nearly 15 to 20 million acres of land. And now here we are, we've got Negroes with more degrees than a thermometer, and we're struggling to maintain 2 million acres. Did you say more degrees (laughs) than a a thermometer? Yes, sir. Um. <laughs> Yo, man. 
<laughs> More degrees than a thermometer. Okay, yeah, you've been around Coakley, bro. You've been around Coakley. <laughs> well, interesting, interesting. So mm-hmm. it's it's important that I believe that you know we really understand the totality of what Dr. King was fighting for. Oh, and yes. very often, you know, we dilute him down to that 1963 <clears throat> part of a speech. Right. So, uh, as we continue, those of us who are involved in the liberation and the education and upliftment of our people, mm-hmm. you know, it's important that we understand that, you know, the anti-CRT type and I'm using that as a type, you know, a type, yeah. as a, uh, a demographic. The anti-CRT type is going to codify, decodify one of our terms in the future, and then recodify it, and then try to use it against us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, uh, I think I used the uh, picture from yeah, Ron DeSantis just had the Stop Woke Act. So, oh wow. Look, yeah, so the Stop Woke Act means that uh, w- w- what he's pushing is that there's certain things you can't talk about in the school. Mm. And you can't bring up historical things that might make somebody feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so I- I'm not going to go into all of it, but yeah. it's the same thing. So um, the earlier guy, Christopher Rufo, did it with CRT. Mm. Ron DeSantis is doing it with the Stop Woke Act. And look, when he says woke, you know he's talking about us, right? Right. So he's really saying stop <clears throat> them act. Right. We got to stop them from making additional gains. We got to stop <clears throat> them from fundamentally changing the country. Yeah. And and like I said, this is nothing new. And, and I can even take you back to the days, um, and I think this happened in your neck of the woods in Brooklyn, where there was a push where they wanted to have black studies curriculum in the school system, in the public school system in New York City. A gentleman by the name of Albert Shanker, who actually created the National Federation of Teachers, who basically created that organization in part to prevent uh, black studies, black cultural nationalism to be taught in the New York City public school system for one reason. His uh, reasoning, because it will teach black students to hate white people. But you had to create a national federation to prevent that. You know, kind of like what Public Enemy said in their sophomore album, it takes a nation of millions. So, I'm going to smack you in the face <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, do a whole lot of dirty stuff. <laughs> then I'm gonna stop because America is changing. Mm-hmm. Then I'm gonna stop America's, and then I'm not going to try to do anything to address the harm I've done. Right. And don't bring it up to my children. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want my children to feel bad. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So, and, and I know I'm being kind of hyperbolic. <laughs> I took that to an extreme, and it, mm-hmm. you know, you could come up and say that's a bad argument. That that's okay. I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. But even King, 
in the 60s was saying that we have to refute the idea that the dominant ideology in our country even today is freedom and equality freedom and equality while racism is just an occasional departure from the norm on the part of a few bigoted extremists so hey we don't want to say anything that would make our children feel bad about their ancestors we don't want to say or do anything that's going to make somebody uncomfortable we don't want to make anybody hate their classmate their neighbor you know maybe their boyfriend their girlfriend husband or wife we don't want to do anything that's going to make people you see you can just you can add a blank there right that's the same argument that they use back in Brooklyn and by the way Brooklyn is a blood type Peace out to Brooklyn. Oh, All right. I got to do it, man. Got to do it. <laughs> so it's intriguing that it's the same game over and over. And Neely Fuller, you know, the elder Neely Fuller said that, you know, white supremacy playbook only has a few plays in it. Mm. So, yeah, not surprised. Dr. King was fighting against this back then, and we need to keep up the fight now. Once again, we're not trying to fight to get CRT in the PK system. PK, I mean, P to K-12 system. Mm-hmm. But we know that, truthfully, you're trying to end the equity programs that give all children a great education. And I understand that. When I'm in the room with my conservative buddies, I'm like, I understand that. Mm-hmm. You want your children to win. They're limited resources, and you want your children to win. You don't want anyone to have anything that's going to take somebody who's on a lower plane and make them equal with your children because right. you want your children to win. Right. And, and see, here's something that Dr. Amos Wilson said about how we need to begin looking at education, okay? There's no such thing as for African and European children having, quote unquote, the same education because you're going to get two different outcomes. For a European child, their education is maintaining status quo. For African children, their education is how do we neutralize the status quo, get the status quo off our back, and in some cases, overthrow that status quo. So you have two different uh, outcomes here. So getting the same education will not give you the same outcome because you're coming from two different stimuli or you have two different intentionalities. You see? So I think this is this is part of what you're beginning to see is is this battlefield and critical race theory just happens to be one of the landmines that has been used as a tool and as a weapon. Well, I think one of the great things in tonight's discussion is we're giving people tools. Mm. So when the uh, tools of evil supremacy quote Dr. King you know you know that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character mm. we have tools right 
You simply ask, are we there yet? Mm-hmm. Bring up the judicial system. Bring up <laughs> the education <laughs> system. Right. Bring up the economic situation. Mm-hmm. King has already talked about these things. And, you know, of course, you know, they're, then they're going to switch to a different conversation. But it's important that people are prepared. Yeah. It's important and, that people are prepared. Yeah. And one of those tools that we didn't get into it much this evening, but one of the tools that King had come up with and really the uh, <clears throat> the SELC and the Poor People's Campaign was an economic bill of rights. Okay, which was initially revealed possibly, I want to say about three weeks after King's assassination. And mm, it was done by uh, what's called a committee of 100. And that committee of 100, it was kind of a lobbying for the Poor People's Campaign. And it was based on five planks. Uh, one, having a meaningful job at a living wage for each employable citizen. Two, having a secure and adequate income for all those unable to find or do a job. Three, access to land for economic uses, income and livelihood. Four, access to capital for poor people and people of color to promote their own businesses. In other words, having full participation in the economy, not just as laborers, but as entrepreneurs. And then five, the ability for ordinary people to play a truly significant role in the government. And then later on in June of 68, uh, Bayard Rustin, who was the real architect uh, behind the March on Washington and really of the civil rights movement itself, uh, came with more of a, I guess you would say a specific uh, bill of rights, which was built on uh, five specific planks. One, recommit the Full Employment Act of 1946 and legislate the immediate creation of at least one million socially useful career jobs in public service. Two, adopt the pending Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968. Three, repeal the 90th Congress's position, uh, punitive welfare restrictions in the Social Security Act. Four, extend to all farm workers the right guaranteed under the National Labor Relations Act to organize agricultural labor unions. And this is where um, Brother Chavez, Julio Cesar Chavez, uh, comes into play. And then number five, restore budget cuts for bilingual education, Head Start, summer jobs, uh, and the Economic Opportunity Act. Okay. And there was a revival of the Poor People's Campaign maybe about a couple of years ago where they wanted to revive these five planks and modify it to fit the present time. So that's another tool that people can begin to use is that economic bill of rights that King and SELC had initiated. Teach, brother. Teach. <laughs> Yo, I mean, just like I said, man, I just. You bring the receipts. Yeah. You bring the receipts. You bring the receipts. Yeah. I, I, I do want to uh, go a little deeper because, you know, we did talk about CRT and we did connect it with uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. King. 
So here's a quote from Christopher Rufo. Mm. All right. Rufo eventually came to see it. The conservatives engaged in the culture war had been fighting against the same progressive racial ideology yeah. since the late Obama years without being ever able to describe it effectively. So Rufo said, we needed a new language for these issues. Mm. All right. Political correctness is a dated term and more importantly, doesn't apply anymore. It's not that the elites are enforcing a set of manners and cultural limits. They're seeking to re-engineer the foundations of human psychology and social institutions through the new politics of race. It's more evasive and more than mere correctness, which has been a mechanism of social control. That's intriguing, Mm. but not the heart of what's happening. The other frames are wrong, too. Cancel culture is a vacuous term and doesn't translate into a political program. Woke is a good epithet, but it's too broad, too terminal, too easily brushed aside. Critical race theory is the perfect villain, Rufo wrote. Mm. He thought that the phrase was a better description of what conservatives were opposing, but it also seemed like a promising political weapon. So, like I said, man, this this article in the New York is a really great article, and it deals with how a conservative activist invented the conflict over critical race theory. Mm. Christopher Rufo, a term for a school of legal scholarship, looked like the perfect weapon. Uh, hey, like I said, man, Christopher Rufo did a great job, man. Folks are upset over this stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're upset over this stuff. But Dr. King had already talked about these things. And right. I, I think it's great that we bring up some of his quotes so that we're better prepared as we deal with America's changing landscape. Yeah. And, you know, I forgot who said it, but they said it beautifully. You know, politics is war without bloodshed and war is politics with bloodshed. You know, so it looks like that we're in a we're in a war without bloodshed at the moment. And it seems like Mr. Rufo has basically created another strategy of deception, if you will. I say so. So you're you're the historian, brother. You're the Mm -hmm. researcher, brother. (laughs) You're the minister, minister. (laughs) So. Who was the real Dr. King and what should we really be celebrating in your thoughts? I think if we really begin to look at and really take a reassessment of Dr. King, uh, we need to celebrate the Dr. King who was willing to put his life on the line for what he truly believed, whether we agreed with him or not. Uh, We need to celebrate the Dr. King who was willing to give a platform to young militants, particularly one in uh, particular who was known then as uh, Stokely Carmichael, but became Kwame Torre because he understood that there was a new generation who was not going to use civil disobedience as a tool for justice. So when Kwame Torre stood up in Mississippi 
and said, we want black power, King knew that there was an eventual changing of the guard. So we also have to celebrate that Dr. King, who as a Christian nominated a Vietnamese Buddhist monk for the Nobel Peace Prize named Thich Nhat Hanh. We need to celebrate that Dr. King, who as a Christian minister, stood with a young Muslim named Muhammad Ali when he chose not to enroll in the United States Army uh, as a conscientious objector against the Vietnam War effort. You know, and for me, that is the king that needs to be celebrated, one who is willing to stand on principle at any cost and be unwavering in that. So to celebrate his sincerity, to celebrate his bravery. And it's a lesson to all of us to not allow others to define the narrative or define the legacy of our heroes and sheroes. Ashe. Ashe. I also think that it's important for us. Uh, you know, I have to admit, I went through that phase of, you know, consciousness and I was like, you know, Dr. King wasn't for us and you know, he was weak and mm. uh, Malcolm was the Malcolm was the man. Malcolm was the man. Who, who do you choose, <laughs> King or Malcolm? I went through that silly phase. And, well, for those of us who are going through it, we. You'll understand. I'm not demeaning anybody yeah. calling them silly who were mm-hmm. in that phrase of critical thinking. Right. But the, the reason that I felt that way is because I didn't know about this king. Right. I didn't know about the king that said riots are more than just the language of the unheard. Perhaps they are the Stouting of an infuriated oppressed people signaling back to powers that terrorize them that they are powerful too. Mm-hmm. I, yes. You know, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, Obama, President Obama, when there were riots, he called people thugs. Mm. When there were riots, Dr. King said, hey, America. This is happening because something is wrong and they're trying to tell you something. Mm-hmm. And, and King made a he, he, he quoted uh, President Kennedy. Um, right, right. And, and the quote was that those who make peaceful revolution impossible only make violent revolution inevitable. So even though he may not have agreed with those young militants emerging in the black power movement, he understood their position and he appreciated their position. Okay. So he wasn't so rigid not to allow other schools of thought to uh, share the same platform with him. I mean, what other leader at that time would have allowed a young Trinidadian who says we want black power to share the platform with him. And I think that speaks volumes to the type of leader that King was. I agree. I agree. The other thing that I think, you know, when we talk about the real Dr. King is people look at just portions of Dr. King. 
like I said, and I didn't totally understand them myself, you know. Mm-hmm. But if we look at what happened on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and I per- I still have a personal beef with that, but mm. after that, you never saw that same level of violence happen to the marchers. After that, you didn't see that same level of violence happen. And it's because of these men that we see in these pictures. Yes. And I don't think enough people understand that the use of nonviolent nonviolent uh, approaches that he used mm-hmm. were primarily used for gaining attention on the plight. Right. You know, uh, they were primarily used as a means to get attention. Mm-hmm. But he also had, after the Edmund Pettus Bridge, he had these brothers, the Deacons mm-hmm. for Defense and Justice. Yes. <laughs> this is yeah. Charles Sims of the Deacons for Defense <clears throat> holding Ku Klux Klan clothing. Why is he holding this clothing? Well, he shot a Klansman and won the court case. <laughs> you know, the white power structure said, you can't shoot us. Mm. He won. Okay. And he was a member of the Deacons for Defense, uh, the Deacons for Defense and Justice. And so after the violence that happened at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, these brothers were hired to provide some level of security. Right. For the marchers. And so most people don't realize that there was armed security at the at some of the marches. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dr. King was involved with that. I'm not saying that he wrote the check. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and not just the deacon for defense, but there were other um, self-defense groups, the Black Hand, Black Elephants, um, or what I would call maroon groups, those who operated in the shadows to provide protection for those freedom riders and and others who practice civil disobedience, even without the knowledge of King and the SCLC, they just felt that there was a need for security and self-defense. Okay, so for every Deacons for Defense, what groups that we don't know in history served as security? Now, now you didn't, you just, you just dropped another one. I, I, I got, I have to applaud <laughs> <laughs> the Black Elephants. Mm-hmm. Did not know. I'm, I'm going to have, okay, let's, let's do the research on that one, man. Let's do the research. Yeah. Man. All right. You know, uh, and, and let's not forget our ancestor, Robert F. Williams, author of Negroes with Guns. You know, who <clears throat> who was personally invited to China by Chairman Mao Zedong. OK, because believe it or not, Chairman Mao was a huge fan and advocate of the black freedom movements here in America. In fact, I dare say that he learned his cultural nationalism from us along with Ho Chi Minh. OK, uh, give me the, the full name for the black elephant group. I'm okay. trying to 
I'm trying to I, Google it. I think it's the black elephants and the black hand. Okay. In fact, in fact I'll look that up with you. Yeah, I, I, that's that's intriguing. I, I'm I've never heard that that group before. Yeah, and that's why I said you know there's always what I call shadow groups, you know, or groups that operate out of the limelight. That just because you don't see them doesn't mean that they're not there. Well, I think we just gave the uh, the viewers some homework. <laughs> so, but I, I do want to uh, kind of wrap things up okay. so I, I know that one of your favorite sayings is you want everyone to become a cop and yes. you're saying we need more police right <laughs> not that type of cop okay <laughs> what I mean by cop is being a COP we need to be creators owners and producers of our goods and services Okay, and not just the physical 3D, but any content we create. Okay, because we are in a climate and we're in a vibration where the people need to create, we need to own, we need to produce, we need to protect, and we need to distribute uh, our goods and services. Okay, so and with my book, I kind of call this a, a 21st century blueprint for black economic empowerment and beyond, particularly being in this post CVD economy, as Jerome Powell said, the uh, leader of the Federal Reserve Bank. OK, we are in a place where we must be more entrepreneurial minded. OK, the need to make sure that your household has multiple streams of income coming through it. And I talk about that in my book. Yes, yes. OK, uh, another yeah. thing you talked about in I'm not sure if it's in GOAT, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's in the other book that you've been working on is to become a $20 revolutionary. Yes. You know, I, I did some math over the, you know, Christmas, New Year's holiday. And I said, what if African people were to make a $20 purchase from a black owned business on a weekly basis? So I did the math. If you were to make a $20 purchase from a black owned business, be it brick and mortar or e-commerce, over a 52 week period, you would have given black businesses $1,040. That's back in the black hands. Now, if we were to multiply that by 50 million African people in this country, we would have shifted nearly $52 billion back into black hands. Now, think of how many jobs we can produce just by that one habit alone. In one now, year. You, you, you use the heaviest word in the English language. If, and okay. as we know, if if was a fifth, we'd all be drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look at that as more of a long term strategy. OK, but as I always say, revolution begins in a mirror. 
So if each individual would take on that challenge, at least for the first 52 weeks, okay, and begin to create momentum into shifting that dollar, doesn't require a change in public policy. It doesn't require you marching. It doesn't require you to put your, uh, you know, yell Black Lives Matter, wherever the case may be. But just that one habit, because real change is something that's invisible. Okay. And if each individual can make that type of commitment to $20 a week for one year, you can begin to create a shift in how you think and how you utilize your financial resources. And this is even before we even start demanding reparations. What can we do with the money that we already have since we already have a purchasing power anywhere between, let's say, 1.5 to nearly 2 trillion? Okay. Hmm. The only thing that we're lacking is a cultural consciousness and a system or systems to where we can begin to make that money work for us. There should be no reason why we have the unemployment rate that we have with that type of money coming through our hands annually. I say, I say. And the last thing we want to tap into is principle 19 from yes. the great book, <laughs> the Gospel of Afronomics <laughs> Theology, the GOAT. The GOAT himself is here with us. Mr. Precise Thinking, Minister Zumbi, tell us about Principle 19. Principle 19, and we talked about this in a previous show, it's called Cultural Tithing. And what it means is we want African people to take a dime out of every dollar and give it to a race-first organization that looks out for the lives and the livelihoods of the African world community. Okay. So let's say I come into this huge financial windfall. Let's say I inherit $30 million. I take 3 million of that and I give that. I could give it to the United Negro College Fund. I could give it to Trans Africa. I can give it to any organization that I consider a race first organization. Because the old adage of charity begins at home is something that we really need to put into practice. Okay, so not only are we taking our dollars and giving it to black owned businesses, we should also take our money and put it into black owned philanthropic endeavors. You know, be they educational, religious, fraternal, Masonic, whatever the case may be any organization that we consider a race first organization. And that comes courtesy of Malcolm X's black nationalist philosophy, where we need to take control of the social, political, economic, and cultural aspects of our communities. I say, I say, well, minister Zumbi, any last words as we wrap up? Okay. Be a cop. And as King says, redistribute the pain. Okay. Don't put your money where you're not appreciated or celebrated. In fact, use that money to build yourself up. And really, that's the next step in King's uh, quest for economic justice. I know he talked about jobs, but we also need to talk about job creation amongst our people because that is the climate and that is the vibration in which we operate today.
And I'll say that King was deeper than we thought. Yes, sir. Don't allow Dr. King to be diluted. We've allowed okay. we've allowed people to dilute Dr. King, you mm-hmm. know, and we dilute him down to a dream. But yes, we we can't do that. We 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 can't allow ourselves to be diluted down, and we can't allow our historical leaders, our historical thinkers, mm-hmm. to dilute our beloved down to anything. We we just can't allow it to happen. So right. stop watering down Dr. King, y'all. <laughs> stop watering down Dr. King. So, you know, if you hear somebody talk about, you know, he was a dreamer, then you can let them know, hey, do you realize that four years after he gave that I have a dream speech, he took it back? Mm. Let him know that. (laughs) Let him know four years after that, he took it back. Mm -hmm. You know, he took it back. He said if America does not use her vast resources of wealth to end poverty and make it possible for all of God's children to have the basic necessities of life, she too will go to hell. Mm -hmm. And we know this for a fact. Poverty is not only man-made, it's intentional. Because you will never see poverty in nature. Ooh, that's intriguing. That's intriguing. Uh, Minister Zumbi, man, um, where can people find your book? Well, presently, you can find it on Amazon. And in fact, I I probably should have said this at the top of the show. uh, I actually have 15 copies uh, in my physical uh, presence. So if anyone wants to have an autographed copy from me, um, I can leave uh, contact information with Brother Seku on how you can get a copy. It's in the chat. It's in the. It's in the. Um, it's in the show notes. <laughs> it's in the show okay. notes. <laughs> so, um, so you can get it from Amazon, or if you can look at the notes, if you want an autographed copy from me, uh, just get it through the contact information. Ashe. And with that, hey, um, hey, keep the, I don't want to say keep the dream alive. Vision. Keep the vision alive. Let's yes, do that. Sir. Keep the vision alive, all right? And work to make sure that your thinking is precise. We need more precise thinking. Peace. Peace. Stay floss, 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 stay floss. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests, unless we say we agree, unless explicitly stated. (laughs) Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly, stay fly, stay fly.